Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 28. Psalm 28, uh, nine, nine verses here in Psalm 28 we're going to be reading. As far as I know, I'm not a lawyer, but as far as I know, Bill Cosby was released on a technicality. There was a promise that was made to him in a civil trial, apparently, that he would be immune from prosecution if he testified. And he did. And there he admitted to some wrongs that he had done, some grievous, terrible wrongs that he had done. And then in a criminal trial later on, he was, it was recalled his testimony, and on that basis, he was put into prison which the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania just recently overturned. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but that's my layman's explanation of it, and as best I understand it, that's what happened. I think, though, when that explanation is given, there are plenty of people in this room, myself included, who feel like that's an injustice. Am I wrong? Do we feel like, wait a minute, that shouldn't have been the case. He did something wrong, and he should suffer for it. Oh, we, we have a, a litany of these that we've seen. How about some Weinsteins, Harvey? How about an Epstein, Jeffrey? Don't we feel like, wait a minute, they should face the justice system for what they did. There was some real wrongs that were suffered here, and they should have to pay for them, I think. It's easy, I think, when we look at injustices that are suffered around the world and we're able to say to them and about them, look, they should have to suffer the justice system. It's easy for us when we look out on the wrongs suffered around the world and the wrongs done by so many to point out their sins and say, yes, they should have to suffer. In our psalm this morning, David is going to plead for God's mercy and for his justice. His justice to be exercised on those who really deserve it and his mercy to be shown to him. Let's look at Psalm 28, verses 1 to 9. It's a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to help uh, to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work. And according to, their e to the evil of their deeds, give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. 
He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. By now, as we look at the Psalms, you're probably used to seeing a pattern start to emerge. We see some of the similar themes come up week in and week out. And that's a really good thing because one of the first steps to good Bible study is to notice the divisions in the text. Notice the points that are being made. Notice the shifts in language. Notice the little transitions that are happening. If you have the ES, an ESV Bible, if you don't, there's one in the pew back in front of you. But if you do have an ESV copy of the Bible, you can see that it's divided pretty neatly in the psalm there for you into little sections. You have section uh, ver- uh, the first section in verses 1 and 2. They're kind of neatly divided, and there's a little bit bigger space. But that verses 1 and 2 is where David is praying for mercy to the Lord. And then in the second uh, section, verses 3 to 5, he is asking for the wicked to be judged. Give me mercy, judge the wicked. And then you see the third section there in 6 to 7 where he praises the Lord for actually showing him mercy. This may be a later date, or this may just be him trusting that this is what is going to happen, that the Lord is going to show him mercy. And then you have in the final verses there in 8 and 9, where he asked the Lord not only to do that for him, but to do that for all his people in all times and in all places. Now, you may remember that the book of Psalms, is the whole, the whole book is divided into five sections. And we've been in the first section uh, for two summers now. We take a little break from our normal study, and we do we do uh, ten psalms typically uh, a summer. Last summer we did the first twenty, and now we're doing uh, Psalms twenty one through thirty, and we're still in that first section, Psalm one to forty one, where David is king, and most of these psalms are going to be written by him. It won't be till after we get out of chapter forty, which will be two summers from now, that. Uh, <laughs> that that uh, we'll get some different authors in here. But for now, we're, we're looking at David, and you're seeing some of these same themes pop up time and time again. For instance, we got a lot of enemies, all right? There's a lot of enemies. David's praying against a lot of enemies. A lot of enemies encircling, and a lot of enemies are being prayed against. We're seeing David be falsely accused. We get a lot of accusations in here. We don't know what they are always, but we get a lot of accusations made against David. And we're seeing David intercede for the congregation. Now, there's an important theme that we need to think about that's being pounded into our heads, psalm after psalm after psalm in Psalm 1 to 41. Uh, Mark Futato puts it this way, book 1, which is Psalm 1 to 41, is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through his anointed king, which is originally David, but ultimately Jesus. So think about that for just a second. I'll read it again. Book one is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through his anointed king, which is originally David, but is ultimately Jesus. I want you to think about that for just a second. I want you to remember that the the king, especially David, is the tip of the spear of God's kingdom. God is thrusting his kingdom into the world, into the heart of sinful man. 
He's thrusting his spear in, and the tip of that spear, the king, is in this case David. Ultimately, it is Jesus. And what he's going to do, what God is going to do by thrusting his, his spear into the world is to provide uh, uh, the world a pathway to salvation, a way of encountering God. I'm being told my microphone is off. Are y'all able to hear me or no? Yes, you're saying my microphone is off. Rookie move. You'd think I'd know by now. Oh my, it's loud now. What a rookie move. Sorry. We good now? Y'all can hear me? Could y'all, do I need to start over? Let me go back. Okay. No, don't start over. Everybody's saying just, just keep going. All right, I'll catch you up. All right. <laughs> so David is the tip of the spear that God is thrusting into the heart of sinful man. And the, the desire on God's part by giving mankind his kingdom is that by, by, by thrusting his Messiah, his king, his anointed one, into the world, he's providing a pathway for sinful man to come into his presence and worship him again. So what has been done by the fall is in the process of being undone by the kingdom of God coming into the world. We clear? So as, God, as, as David, or as ultimately Jesus, is going to be thrust into the world, they're bringing in the nations into glad submission to the God that created them. So that the nations can come in and repent of sin. And there, at the tabernacle, or later the temple, or now through Christ, be given forgiveness of sin. So you'll notice that in verse 8, David calls to the Lord. He is the strength of His people and the saving refuge of His anointed. That word anointed is Messiah. Originally referred to the King. David is calling himself the anointed one. He is the saving refuge of His anointed one. Now specifically, that King, David, is one who stood for the people. He is standing between the people and God as their intercessor. God, you are going to communicate to these people. You are reaching out to these people. You are bringing these people to yourself through your anointed one. We can see why it's ultimately Jesus that people are going to be brought to God. So then the anointed one's adversaries, those are the people's adversaries. The anointed one's enemies are the people's enemies. The salvation that is extended to the king is salvation that is ultimately extended to the nation. As the anointed one goes, so goes the nation. They're associated with him. God is giving them the gift of this king. So when David prays, in other words, in the Psalms, He's inviting the congregation to sing along with him. The salvation that I have from my enemies is salvation you have from your enemies. In this psalm, David has been saved by the strength of the Lord. He says, he's, the, he's my saving refuge, as we just read. And his intercessory prayer has been answered, and the Lord has been his rescue. He says in, in verse 6, He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. But if I were to say to you that I was saved, 
as David says here. He says he's safe. It would be necessary for you to ask, saved from what? Saved to what? Being saved might mean something different in a different context. Well, it appears here in this psalm that David is not merely concerned about being saved in his physical life. As we've read in so many psalms before, where he is concerned that his enemies are going to encircle him and kill him physically, it seems in this psalm he is less concerned about his physical well-being. And he's more concerned about his soul. His soul actually being dragged to hell. His concern is that in his death, he would face the same judgment of God that the wicked would face. Look at what he says in verse 3, that he would be dragged off with the wicked and with the workers of evil. David's concern about salvation is his concern about eternal salvation. I want to be saved, ultimately. Not just saved from my enemies in the here and now. I don't want my soul to be dragged off into hell. So this psalm actually draws a fairly stark contrast between the saved and the condemned. What does it mean to be saved? What does it actually mean is true of me if I have received salvation from the Lord? Remember, these psalms are going to be sung by an entire community of Israelites who are celebrating their salvation together in worship of the God who saved them. So this song is this this song this psalm is really a, a, a song about being saved eternally, about being a redeemed people. It's a celebration about what it means to be saved, receiving the Lord's mercy. And that actually has immense meaning for us because it's going to tell us a good deal about our own salvation. So I want to ask this question this morning. What does it really mean to be saved? What does it mean, actually, for us to have salvation? What does it mean happens to us? Really, practically, what does it mean? Well, the first thing we see that we have to understand is that we are saved by the mercy of God, from the wrath of God. We're saved by the mercy of God, from the wrath of God. What can get lost here in this psalm is David's own guilt in this prayer. He doesn't say what he's exactly guilty of in the psalm. And he prays, obviously, against the wicked. But look at verse 4, he says... Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. As I mentioned a number of times, and you're by now well aware, David wasn't necessarily a guy you'd be thrilled for your daughter to bring home for Thanksgiving. All right? I mean, David is a man after God's own heart, of course. He's a repentant person. But let's be honest... He's killed a few people. And in the case of Uriah the Hittite, some of them were innocent. I mean, just imagine your daughter 
bringing him home. Yes, he's got a prison record. And yes, he has face tattoos, but he's a good guy, I swear. He has a heart that really seeks the Lord. I don't know how much comfort that would actually bring you, right? Uh, here is David in this case who cannot build the temple because so much blood is on his hands. He is requesting that the Lord sweep away the sinners in judgment. And for, him to, and for the Lord to give them according to the works of their hands. So it's important then that we not miss verses 1 to 2 and 6 to 7, which both contain David's plea for mercy and his confidence that the Lord has answered his plea for mercy. We need to understand that it's not as though David is in this psalm claiming a special case where he's innocent and the rest of the people are guilty. Give them according to their deeds. I have done nothing. I'm an innocent man. I'm being surrounded by a bunch of guilty fools. Innocent people don't plead for mercy. That's not what David's saying here. David's not claiming innocence. He's asking the Lord to grant him mercy precisely because of the understated reason that otherwise he would be swept away into hell. There's only one way that I can be saved, David is saying. That is, if the Lord looks to me and gives to me mercy, even though I've sinned. He says as much at the end of verse 1, look at it, he says, My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. And he says in verse 3, Do not drag me off with the wicked. So in other words, he is dependent on the Lord to be a saving refuge for him. I cannot emphasize enough how vital it is to the Christian life that you understand your own guilt before God. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that you understand your own guilt before God. We don't want to do that. I tend to give myself a lot of slack. It's easy for me to look out at the Bill Cosbys and the Harvey Weinsteins and the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world and say, they deserve justice. And maybe it even causes me to pray with God, or with David here, God give them according to the works of their own hands. Don't we? But then when the angel of justice comes to my doorstep, I turn off the TV and pretend I'm not home. I tend to give myself a lot of slack when it comes to my own sins. Listen, I'm okay. I'm not the one. It's all of them. Those are the ones that really deserve hell. Those are the ones that need to be dragged away. But I want you to take just a moment because it's vital for us understanding what David is actually pleading for here. If David is a man after God's own heart, why would he plead for God's mercy? We need to take a minute to consider what's happened to all of us. I'm going to give you maybe, maybe a little bit of an analogy. 
You are right now in possession of something you inherited from your forefathers that was stolen. You have something from your forefathers that was stolen. And that is the knowledge of good and evil. You're in possession of it right now. You have it, don't you? Yes? It was stolen by your forefathers. Going all the way back to Adam. Knowledge of good and evil was originally only in God's possession. He was the only one that had it. Which is why when Adam sinned, God says he has become like us, knowing good and evil. God was the only one that had it. Adam was told not to reach out and take it. And Adam stole it. Now, everyone that comes from Adam inherits it from him. It's handed down from Adam to you. Merely by having Adam's blood. By being born of Adam's race. The mere fact that you are not innocent of good and evil is evidence that it has come into your possession. And it was a stolen good. Once Adam took it, he was condemned to die. Removed from the garden. He and Eve. Condemned to die. And he could do nothing else but pass it on to all of his children. Which is how you came by it. And then when they came to possess it, they too would be condemned to die. By mere fact that they were created to be innocent and they are no longer innocent. That's true of you and me, everybody in this room. That's reason number one why we deserve death. And we deserve, as David puts it, to be dragged off with the wicked. But reason number two is because your sin is an extreme offense to God. I want you to think about that for a second. You have come into possession of the knowledge of good and evil, and with it, you exercise sinful behaviors. So humanity is a creature that God created in a state of innocence, and why did He create them that way? They were to perform a specific task, and that task was spreading the glory of God around the world and subduing the world to Him, bringing them all into worship of God. They were created to have dominion. We were created to have dominion. This same creation that was created to be that way is not only fully aware now of good and evil, a stolen good, but now we actually use that knowledge to spend our days glorifying ourselves. Rather than living for the glory of God exclusively. So, our bouts with greed, with envy, or lust, or selfishness, or covetousness, even our little white lies, they are all attempts to get glory for ourselves. 
So with our covetousness, with our greed, with our lust, with our selfishness, we want all things that will bring us pleasures of all kinds. We lie to save face, to make ourselves look more impressive. It's all taking that stolen awareness of good and evil and showboating in the face of God. We live for our own glory. So we're left in a situation, and David seems to understand this quite well in Psalm 28. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. So he understands this thing that we have now become all too well. If you are just silent, Lord, if you just, if you just hide your face, if you don't tell us who you are, if you don't come and show us mercy, if you don't give us grace, if you don't move, we die. So understand exactly then what we have in Christ. For just a second. Not only does not God not stay silent, He also doesn't come to us and say, you know what, you just need to be better. Instead of making the choices that glorify you, just make the choices that glorify me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't do that. We have God Himself being born of man and yet not born of Adam. What's the importance of that? Why would He need to be born of man and yet not born of Adam? Well, He doesn't inherit Adam's stolen goods. No. He comes by the knowledge of good and evil naturally from his father who is God, not Adam. So he is born of the Virgin Mary and also by the Holy Spirit. So he is truly man and yet he is also truly God. And he's charged by God to become a new kind of Adam. One who is born by the Spirit who can take this chaotic and unruly world that is ensnared by sin and subdue it for the glory of God as Adam was originally charged to do, to bring the enemies of God into glad submission to Him again. So he does this, not by sheer might, but by dying the death that the children of Adam deserved and suffering the wrath of God. I want you to consider what's given to us in Isaiah 53, 4 to 5. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Think about 1 John four ten. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, that is, the appeasement to God for our sins. Or think about John 3 36. For those who are outside of Christ, what is the result for them? He says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What about Romans 9 15 to 16? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That makes us a little uncomfortable. Perhaps we might wish it was about our own choices or our own might or our own exertion rather than on the will of God to have mercy on us. We're saved by the mercy of God from the wrath of God. That is precisely what Jesus and John are concerned about there in John 3. Is that without Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. That's the problem. What's the difference then? Between those who are saved and those who are condemned. Well, that's the second part of the psalm. The result of our salvation is heartfelt exaltation. This is the, the difference that David is going to point to in this psalm. Look at verses 6 to 7. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to Him. Exult is not a word that we use very often. It's not exalt, it's exult. That's not a typo. Exult, exultation. What does that mean? It means to feel triumphant jubilation. How do you like that? Triumphant jubilation. Here's what, here's what it means. Bursting at the seams with joy. That's what happens. That's what's the difference. That's what happens in the heart of a believer. When it is changed from one who is condemned to die to one who has been saved by the mercy of God. Heartfelt exaltation. Bursting at the seams, joy. Someone who has truly understood what God has done for him in Christ now experiences heartfelt exaltation. Joy over what God has done of being shown mercy. But how do we know that that's the marker between the one who has been shown mercy and the one who has been dragged off with the wicked? Look just before this in verses 4 to 5. Give to them according to their work, and according to the evil of their deeds, give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Why are they destroyed? Because there's no regard. Look at the difference between the two people. David is not claiming innocence. He knows that he is guilty and he requires mercy. But he also knows that those works, those sinful works that he's done, that's not my heart. That's not what's really in there. What's really in there is exaltation. It's joy. It's bursting at the seams joy over what you have done. He's not claiming innocence. He's not saying, I'm innocent, spare me, kill them, they're guilty. No, his heart is overcome with joy, with exaltation. Exaltation toward what? What is he happy about? 
It's not with salvation. He's not overcome with joy at just being shown mercy. Look at verse 7 again. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to Him. The result of His salvation is heartfelt exaltation to God who has saved Him. Not merely the fact that He's saved, but that He is saved and He spends forever in the eternal presence of God. That's what He's excited about. That's what He wants more than anything. To have fellowship again with the One who created Him. But what has happened in the heart of the wicked? The ones being dragged off to hell. There's no regard for the works of the Lord or the work of His hands. I want you to understand that David is not saying the difference between the community of the redeemed and the community of the condemned is choices. Think about this for just a second. Think really hard about this for just a second. David is not saying that the difference between the redeemed and the condemned is choices. Well, I choose to exult in the Lord, and you choose not to. Therefore, I'm saved, and you're not. No, he's saying it's a heart issue. My heart is overcome with joy, and theirs is not My heart is overcome that God has shown me mercy. And they have no regard for Him whatsoever. There's no joy in their heart whatsoever. This boils it down to what is really essential for us to understand about our own salvation. We think so frequently of the Christian life as a choices issue. One chooses to regard God and one chooses not to regard God. One chooses to go to church and to read the Bible and one chooses not to go to church and to read the Bible. We force this on our kids. Do you choose Jesus or do you choose not Jesus? That's the wrong question. What brings your heart joy? That's the right question. Please understand the difference in these two ideas. It's vital that you understand it. I want to put this in a real world scenario. Let's say a Christian friend of yours sits down with you at a coffee shop and they tell you, I am addicted to pornography and I need help. What are you going to say to them? What counsel do you give to them? They've confessed a very serious sin of addiction and they're asking for your help and your counsel. And whatever you tell them right now, that's what they're going to go home and do. They're going to respond just like that. Probably. I'm betting most of your counsel is going to be, well, you need to put up some internet filters. You need to get some accountability partners. Call me whenever you're struggling. I'll be there with you. 
You're going to give them some advice, go to bed earlier, make some different choices, do some different things. That's the solution. That's what you need here. Now, all of those are great ideas, and all of those need to be done. Unfortunately, after they're all accomplished, they have still not addressed the fact that the addiction is not merely a choices issue, but a heart-level issue. This goes for any addiction. This goes for any sin. It's not a mere choices issue. It's a heart-level issue. You can lock them away in a closet if you want to, and their heart is still desiring to look at whatever they want to look at, to take part in whatever they want to take part in, or participate in whatever they want to do. Their heart is still burning within them to pursue whatever pleases them. The heart of your friend is still exulting, if you will, in images on the screen. He or she is finding joy and pleasure there. So then, you have to ask yourself, how do I get that person across the table for me to change the love in their heart. Well, that's a lot harder counsel, isn't it? Do you see that? This means yes, this means no. Do you see that? That's much harder advice to give. Well, how do I convince them to love something different? That can't be merely done by just putting up internet filters. They don't all of a sudden switch their loves. It's easy to recommend different choices, but the hard work is in changing loves. How do you do that? Well, David seems to point to exactly the issue regarding the works of the Lord or the works of His hands. That seems to be the thing that's really missing from the heart of the wicked when it comes to the work of his hands, the work of the Lord, they pay no attention to it. But in contrast, those who are wise, those who are pursuing the Lord, are paying attention to the work of his hands or the work of the Lord. And that is the catalyst for heart change. It's actually observing what the Lord has done. It's meditating on it. It's thinking about it. The benefit for you, dear brothers and sisters, is that He has preserved a written copy of the works of His hands for all generations. You have it in every language you could possibly want. You have the works of His hands right here in your hands. But is there regard for it in your life? Is there actual meditation from day to day on what those works mean for you, on the mercy and grace shown to you in Christ? Is there actual regard for it? It's a catalyst for heart change. Meaning that for your friend, while it's certainly important that he or she have plenty of obstacles, so as not to make, to make any provisions for the flesh, those are not enough. The heart of the addicted person has to become enthralled with what the Lord has done for them. 
That's the goal. That's actually the goal for your kids. That's the goal for you. That's the goal for your quiet times. That's the goal for your wife, your spouse. That's the goal for your friends. That's the goal for anybody. Anybody you sit across from counseling them, any singular Christian, the goal is to be enthralled with what the Lord has done for them. And you cannot stop until that has happened. So that means that for the person who is, a, is in the throes of addiction, the Netflix, the casual TV watching, the changing of the channel, the sports radio, the country music. Now none of those things are inherently wicked, but all of them have to go. Maybe not permanently. I'm not saying everybody has to go home and cancel their Netflix subscription. But for those that are in the midst of the throes of addiction, whose hearts are enthralled by all kinds of other things other than the Lord, you can't afford those things. They don't edify. They don't remind your heart of what you should be enthralled by. They don't remind your heart to exult in the worship of God. They don't remind you of those things. In fact, they distract you from those things, and all of those things need to be replaced with various forms of media that remind the listener what the Lord has done for them. If you are a Christian, and you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, your heart will grow more enthralled by the day the more you are reminded of His truth. Now, there's another dog inside you, the dog of the flesh. The dog of the spirit, the dog of the flesh, the one you feed more is the one that wins. It's plain and simple. You begin to feed the dog that has nothing to do with your spiritual edification. Don't be surprised when it bites the hand that feeds him. Don't be surprised when it mauls you. But the more a Christian considers the works of the Lord and the mercy shown to him in Christ, the more he will experience the heartfelt exaltation there, and the less his heart will exult in images on a screen or all kind, a host of other things that he might currently be enthralled by. The sin is not a choices issue, it's an affections issue. That's what David is demonstrating here in the psalm. His heart has been changed as he's dwelled upon what the Lord has done for him in showing him mercy and saving him from the pit. And because of that, he can't help but worship. Now here's the reason that's important. What would it look like if our churches, that is, everyone in the pew and everyone in the pulpit too, fingers pointed at me too, okay? What if our churches were filled with people who come in here with hearts that are exulting in the mercy of the Lord. What would it look like? How would it be different? Not that had to get there, not that came in cold, but when they came in, they were already there. How would the singing be different? How would the listening be different? How would the prayers be different? How would all of that be different if all of that was already done Monday through Saturday? Our churches are often filled with Christians whose daily life is occupied with their addictions 
and who routinely, day in and day out, do not regard the works of the Lord at all. In fact, on Monday through Saturday, live so much like the rest of the world, are occupied daily with the goings-on of their life. So when they come to church, what do they demand? Well, they demand that the church scratch their itch for engagement. Come on, pastor. Engage me. Entertain me. Keep my attention. Stop with these songs. They're too slow. I need faster songs because I need engagement. I'm checking out. It's too long. Shorten it. I can't stay engaged that long. You've got to keep my eyes and attention like a commercial on TV. And what happens when the church doesn't give them that? Change the channel. Find somewhere else. Why? Because it doesn't scratch my itch. The reason this is important is because, and the reason we know it affects so many people home is because this is what we're all demanding of our churches today. Scratch my itch. Do what I want. Please me. And when it doesn't, we flip the switch. But you know what? You can't walk into a church when you've been enthralled by the world during the week. You can't walk into a church and flip a switch and be enthralled by God. It doesn't work that way. This right here is the fruit of what happens Monday through Saturday. It is what we make it. So much of this responsibility falls on men to lead their families. I'm not speaking at the exclusion of women, all right? You're in this too? But I am putting a special focus on men. This falls on your shoulders as leaders of your family. As spiritual heads of your family, this falls particularly on your shoulders to lead your families in this direction. You can't lead your families like Homer Simpson and then expect anything less than Bart. All right? That's what happens. We struggle, men, I mean, in particular, working all the time, being distracted from family. Home time is consumed almost entirely with entertainment. We refuse to lead our families in devotions at night, opening the Word, teaching our families what the Word is saying. Your role as head of your family is chief disciple-maker. You have to be enthralled by God and His mercy. As David is showing here, you have to be enthralled by His mercy before you can ever lead your family that way. It's on you. And there are no excuses. Where your family is overly consumed by entertainment, it's your responsibility to call it out. Where your family is deficient, in rejoicing over the Lord's mercy, it's on you to make changes. 
Now, you might say, well, look, ugh, opening the Bible at home and, and teaching my kids and my, my, my family, sometimes they ask questions that I'm not really sure about. I don't really know the answer to those things, and that makes me really nervous. What if my kid asks me to explain the Trinity? Uh, have, uh, parents, have you been in that situation? Kid asks you a question, and you're like, go to bed. <laughs> you should have been in bed 30 minutes ago, really. That's my fault. So how do I learn? Well, I mean, how, how am I supposed to lead my family when I, I just don't have that bouncing around in between my ears. They ask questions, I, I just don't have the answer. Listen to me. I want you to listen very closely. The church is your laboratory for education and spiritual growth. You understand that? The church is your laboratory for education and spiritual growth. There are two things that we do on a weekly basis that you need to avail yourself of. The first is building blocks. I'm not bashing Sunday school, all right? I'm not. we got two Sunday school classes. They're taught by two ladies that are wonderful. And ladies, if you want to join them, you can feel free to join them. Uh, Liz Carden, Gladys Moffat, great teachers. They teach the Bible every day, every Sunday. We are doing building blocks as a church. The Sunday school classes are going on. Building blocks is what we're doing moving forward. We're going to be expanding those. Building blocks are designed to educate you. There will be more coming out. I'll send out an email tomorrow. We'll have more information on building blocks coming up for the next year. Feel free to choose which ones you want to attend. The goal is to educate you, to give you information, to help you think deeply about different aspects, be they scripture or be they practical, everyday things that you need to use. Right now we're going through apologetics. We'll go through discipleship. We'll go through different books of the Bible. Lots of different things that you can choose from. They're ways of educating you. Wednesday night is also that option for you. To come Wednesday night and discuss things that are there in the Scriptures. We're going through the entire story of the Old Testament. We're in the middle of 2 Kings right now. We're going to be going through intertestamental period. We're going to be going in the New Testament. We're going to be going into all kinds of different things. Avail yourself of that so you can learn. For what purpose? So that you can be the chief disciple maker of your family. So that you can teach your kids. So that you can teach your spouse. So that you can edify one another. So that you can be built up and trained. When I first got here, I said, first sermon actually, was that the goal for the next few years was going to be for you to get used to hearing me preach and for me to get used to preaching. And I think we've established some sort of a routine. Now, we're transitioning for the next few years. We're going to be building community within this church. That means small groups are going to be a big point of emphasis for us going forward. Small groups in the home. If the church is a laboratory of education and development and training, then our homes are laboratories of hospitality. Where we get to exercise what we've learned by showing hospitality to those in the body, to those in our neighborhoods. So it's going to be community. It's going to function for us as evangelism, ways of actually reaching out to the community around us, 
We're going to be harping on that a lot. In the pew in front of you is a card that is labeled a connection card. On it has a box to check for small groups. Check if you're interested. We have more opening up. You'll have more information on that coming forward. But I want you to get involved in that. How do you actually grow as a Christian? You learn and you practice. You learn and you practice. You learn and you practice. And through that comes growth. Get involved. You have no excuse for not growing in your faith. You have no excuse for not exalting in the mercy that God has shown to you in Christ. You will be taught it week in and week out, both in the sermon, in our groups, in our times of study, and in our small groups at home. You will continue to be reminded of these things. So we have no excuse to rest on our laurels day in and day out and fail to contemplate what God has done for us in Christ. What is the difference? What does it mean to be saved? It means that we're a community of people bought by the blood of Jesus who on reflecting on that fact that God has brought us back from the dead and bought us with the blood of Christ, we exult in the mercy that He's shown to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that for us in this room, our hearts would be changed. That in reflecting on the salvation that you have given to us in Christ, we would rejoice. That we would desire all the more to be edified, to hear again the good news of the gospel, that we have been saved in Christ alone, that it would bring us joy as we reflect on the songs that we sing, on the prayers that we pray, on the scriptures that we read, on the sermons that we hear, that it would cause us all the more to reflect on the fact that God has saved us, that you have shown us mercy in Christ when you didn't have to, that you had us dead to rights, and yet, instead of killing us, you redeemed us. Do that in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.